Well, open your Bibles to Romans chapter 5. Romans chapter 5. We started this new section in Romans just before the missional emphasis, and we returned there today. And chapter 5 actually begins the, the fourth section of the book, which is all about the, the blessings that come from the gospel. And as we said last time when we introduced these next four chapters, it's, um, it's massively encouraging. We, we, we've already seen the introduction from Paul and then our universal need and then God's exclu- exclusive solution. And this week, it's the believer's assurance. We'll be here for quite, quite some time. Uh, the assurance that we get because of the righteousness that God's given us. And then, of course, what, what's coming, the defense and the, the power and the preaching and then the, the doxology. But starting in chapter 5 and stretching all the way through chapter 8, Paul outlines all the promises and the privileges that we have because we have been declared righteous in Jesus Christ. If, if these chapters had a theme song, it would surely be blessed assurance. Blessed assurance, Jesus is mine. Oh, what a foretaste of glory divine. And that, that's what we have. We have a, we have a foretaste of the, the glory that we will receive and that we're actually promised because we, we have been justified by faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And Paul writes these chapters to give us unshakable confidence about that salvation. And, and he does that by outlining all of the blessings that, that, that Christ has secured for us. You remember his main concern in chapters 1 through 3 is that we recognize our need for the gospel. So he spends two and a half chapters laying out the evidence that all people are guilty before God. The, the immoral man that doesn't know God is guilty. The the moral man that covers his sin with religion is guilty. All men are under sin, They're, meaning that it, it comes from inside of them, and so there's none righteous, not, not even one of us. So all of us are in need of the gospel. Now for four chapters, though, Paul will lay out the assurances uh, of our forgiveness. It's the, the fruit, if you will, of, of justification. In chapter 5, he's going to tell us that we have peace and grace and hope with God and, and eternal life through, through Christ, the life that the last Adam brings. He'll tell us in chapter 6 that we're, we're dead to sin and yet alive to God. Sin is no longer our master. He'll declare to us that we're th- free from the law and the penalty in chapter 7 and, and one day we'll even be free from this body of death. And finally in chapter 8, a lot of folks favorite chapter in, in the book of Romans, if not the Bible, um, he'll describe the new life that we now possess in, in the Holy Spirit, beginning of verse 1, there is therefore now no condemnation. And the stirring section then ends with that confident certainty that nothing can separate us from the, the love of God in, in Christ Jesus. And Paul says, I mean nothing. Paul spends twice as long going over our secured benefits than he does our guilt. Two and a half chapters to four. Because God wants you to know that you're saved and that you're secure. If you are. (laughs) He wants us to nail that down once for all. I mean, how God sees us in the position that we hold in Jesus Christ. He he wants us to to know. And the the last time we we said you you could say it this way, God wants genuine believers to know that they're secure in Christ, and he wants those who are self-deceived to see and realize just the opposite, how insecure they they really are. They're they're like a a spider dangling over a a fire by its own thread, just waiting for a flame to, to lick up and sever the cord. Which is why God puts Romans 1 through 3 in the in the Bible. God graciously tells us as sinners the truth about the judgment that, that is coming. But at the same time, God wants genuine believers to be sure of their salvation, which is why he writes Romans 5 through, through 8. I mean, it would be hard to underestimate the significance of these four chapters, not only for the book of Romans, but for all of the, the Bible. It, the first two verses, the way Paul launches this entire section... He gives us three introductory blessings that accompany justification. There is positional peace, 
there is standing grace and there's a joyful hope. We, we have all of these blessings because we have been justified, something that happened to us in the past, that past was that salvation, and it's the reason that we have these benefits in the future and the reason we'll be glorified in the, in the, in the future. Benefits in the present, I should say, and glorified in the future. We outlined it this way. We have a position of peace. We have, uh, uh, we have access or we access, I should say, a standing of grace, and we possess a future hope. Now, we covered the first one last time. We're going to cover the the second one this time. But just by way of review, the first blessing that accompanies our justification is we have a position of peace with God. Look, if you would, at verse 1, chapter 5. Paul says, Therefore, having been justified by faith, past tense, We have peace with God, present tense, through our Lord Jesus Christ. And it begins with the little word, therefore, showing us what is coming is an application of what came before. And so Paul starts by declaring something that happened uh, for us in the past. That past event is our justification described in the last four chapters, and, uh, and we've been acquitted by by the holy judge, and our standing has now changed. To be justified means that you've been declared right by God, and now you're treated as if you, as if you are. And that's a judicial declaration, so that doesn't change. And so now that you're justified, all of the blessings that, that come to someone who's right with God are, are, are ours, right now. That's what Paul's saying. And Paul's going to describe those. We now possess certain blessings in the... Those possessions, those blessings flow from justification. Or to say it another way, justification is not only the first blessing that that God grants us in Christ, it it carries with it many more blessings. In fact, justification carries with it every other blessing of the Christian life. It's, It's how big of a deal it is. If you're not justified before God, declared right with God judicially, then you have no access to any blessing from from the Lord. And Paul uses a, an aorist participle here uh, to justify, showing it's a, it's a completed act. So what do we have, though, because we have been justified by faith alone? Well, well we have positional peace with, with God. He says, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God. And as a sinner, you were at war with God, but, but now, being justified in Christ, you're at peace. We said last time, this is not the peace of God that's arbitrating in your heart, this is peace with God. This is the, the ceasing of hostilities. It's, it's objective. This is, this is assurance based on a fact, not a feeling. It's, it's not subjective. And that's the difference between the peace of God and, and peace with God. The second blessing that accompanies our justification is we access a standing of grace in Christ and that's what he covers in verse, verse 2. He says it's entered through Christ, it's obtained by grace, and it's a nearness to God in grace. Look if you would at verse 2. It says, Through whom also we have obtained our introduction by faith into this grace in which we, we stand and we exult in in hope of the, of the glory of God. Verse 1, he says, we have. And in verse 2, he says, we have obtained. I mean, noting that these are new and these are separate blessings. We have peace with God and we have now obtained something. And once again, they are possessions because we have been justified. And both of them come through uh, Jesus Christ. That, that's the whom that Paul's speaking of here. In the through whom also. Look at the end of verse 1. We have obtained peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom also. And that's very specific. Paul uses very specific and particular language here. He says, our Lord Jesus Christ. He's the Messiah who was promised in the Old Testament. That's the Jesus part. He's God, he's the Lord, and he's ours. You now have this personal association. With him. He's no longer your enemy. He's now your Lord, and He is your, your personal Messiah. You get the benefits. Bill Mount said, 
Through him, we have been ushered into the presence of God the Father and have gained access into this gracious relationship with which we, we now stand. You cannot have peace with God, or now you can't have access to grace outside of Christ. I mean, he's the door. Jesus said, by me, if any man enters in, he'll go in and out and find pastures. All the other ways, everyone who led one of those ways is, is a thief and a, and a robber. But whatever Paul is talking about here with, with this standing grace, he says it's not possible outside of Christ, and it's entered into by, by faith. Look at verse 2 again. Through whom also, that's through our Lord Jesus Christ, we've obtained an introduction by faith. It's entered into by faith. But as you read this verse, you might just glance over the most significant statement that Paul makes, which is the key to understanding what he's saying here. It's, it's this idea of an introduction or this nearness that, that you have now in grace. I mean, Paul says we've gained something, which has ongoing results. He uses a perfect tense here for the word obtained, and what we have, have obtained is access or introduction. And it's an introduction to grace. And we now stand in that grace or we remain in that, that grace. The, the word was used to mean access into the presence of, of, of royalty. You now have entrance that you didn't have before. You, you were once outside of the court. You, you had to be invited into the court. And now you have been admitted to to the court. You now have familiar relations with the, with the, the king or the, or the queen. And because it was used that way, it then became used as, as to mean an entrance with a deity, of an access to God, which is how Paul uses it here. And if you know your Old Testament, the change, this, this change of access that Paul heralds here is, is, is breathtaking. Because approaching God is, is described in the Bible as something quite dangerous. I mean, God is, is not your homeboy. He's not the, the big guy upstairs. He's a consuming fire. And he's not to be trifled with. I mean, the Bible says there was at one point when God walked with man in the cool of the day, meaning that, that he had fellowship with, with, with Adam, and Adam had fellowship with him. But once sin entered in Genesis 3, that, all of that was lost. And from then on, sinners were separated from God's presence. That's because the Bible says, in him is light, and, and there is no darkness at all. But in us, there's, there's iniquity and there's sin. And, and those two things just can't, can't cohabitate. They, they, they just can't go together. So we, we are unable to, to approach God. And that's a constant theme in the, in the Old Testament. And I want you to turn back to Exodus chapter 19 to understand what, what Paul means with this blessing here, that we, this change that's taken place because of our justification. We need to turn back to the Old Testament, and then we'll turn forward to the Gospel of Mark and see when this change happened, and that's going to help us understand how significant this this blessing is. I'm going to make you work for your lunch this morning. You're going to turn twice. I know I don't normally have you do that. This is, this is powerful. Exodus chapter 19. And verse 7, this is Moses when he goes to Sinai, and when the Lord visits Sinai and then speaks with Moses and gives the Ten Commandments. Verse 7. So Moses came and called the elders of the people and set before them all the words of the Lord, uh, which the Lord commanded him. And the people answered and said, All that the Lord has spoken we will do. And Moses brought back the words of the people to the Lord. And the Lord said to Moses, Behold, I will come to you in a thick cloud, so that the people may hear when I speak with you, and may also believe in you forever." And then Moses told the words of the people to the Lord. Notice there's a mediator here. There's, there's the Lord, there's Moses, there's the people. And Moses is going back and forward, relaying. Now, of course, it's not like God didn't hear the people. Like Moses has to tell him something. There's something going on here on purpose. Verse 10. 
The Lord also said to Moses, Go to the people and consecrate them today and tomorrow and let them wash their garments and let them be ready for the third day. For on the third day the Lord will come down on Mount Sinai in the sight of all the people. You shall set bounds for the people all around, saying, Beware that you do not go up on the mountain or touch the border of it. Whoever touches the mountain shall surely be put to death. Drop down to verse 16. So Here's it, the actual event happening. So it came about on the third day, when it was morning, there were thunder and lightning flashes and a thick cloud upon the mountain and a very loud trumpet so that all the people who were in the camp trembled. And Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet God and they stood at the foot of the mountain. They stood afar off. Verse 18, now Mount Sinai was all in smoke because the Lord descended upon it in fire. And its smoke ascended like the smoke of a furnace and the whole mountain quaked violently. And When the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder, Moses spoke and God answered him with thunder and the Lord came down on Mount Sinai. Everything up to this point is just the, the, the pre-show. Now the Lord is coming down in the midst of that, on the top of the mountain. And the Lord called Moses to the top of the mountain, and Moses went up. Now this is God's meeting with Moses on Mount Sinai, as I said, when he gives the ten words of the Ten Commandments. And he is giving instructions to Moses that the people shouldn't even come near to the mountain, or even touch the mountain lest they, lest they die. And the people who saw this manifestation of God's presence clearly understood. Turn over to the next chapter and look at their response. So Exodus 20, verse 18. In between, you have the, the Ten Commandments. You shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery. God actually speaks to Moses. When he speaks to him, he gives him the commandments. Look at Exodus 20, verse 18, because this is the response of the people to what they saw and what they heard. All the people perceived the thunder and the lightning flashes and the sound of the trumpet and the mountain smoking. And when the people saw it, they trembled and stood at a distance. And then they said to Moses, Speak to us yourself and we will listen. But let not God speak to us, for we will die. Verse 21. So the people stood at a distance while Moses approached the thick cloud where God was. I mean, the people were so afraid from just hearing the Lord and seeing this, this preparation for Him coming. They tell Moses, we don't even want to hear His voice. Uh, you don't worry about us going onto the mountain or looking at Him. We don't even want to hear Him. You talk to us. And that separation that's there continues through the rest of the Bible. The tabernacle, whenever the tabernacle was, was built, there was a distance between God and the, the people. I mean, the tribes were camped around the tabernacle. The tabernacle was in the middle of the tribes, and so it signified God was in the midst of His people, but the priests were the ones that, that ministered in the tent of, of meeting. And There was even greater separation between God and the nations all around Israel, but even His people couldn't approach Him without a high priest. And that priest could enter only into God's presence once a year, and when he did, he filled the holies of holy with smoke, the smoke of incense, so he wouldn't be incinerated by God's glory, and he offered a blood atonement for his own sin, even to go in just once a year. And when the temple was built, the permanent structure, the, there were the same kind of boundaries. There was a boundary for the Gentiles, the court of the Gentiles. They couldn't go uh, into the inner court, but God's people still did not have access. They only had access by a priest and a human mediator between them and the Lord. Paul says, while that was the case then, we now have obtained an introduction into God's very presence. And we now stand in a position of grace. Where we were once held at a distance for our own protection, we can now have confidence to draw near, which is what Hebrews is talking about. Because we've been cleansed by the blood of Christ. Because we've been justified. We, we're now in this justified state where God has declared us righteous. We now have an introduction or an entrance into His very presence. And the, the fact that that takes place, that we have been acquitted by God, 
is what obtains this introduction into his very presence. We're no longer separated from him. We call him father and he calls us sons. And that access was granted at the cross of Jesus Christ. Now I want you to to turn over to Mark chapter 15. Mark chapter 15. So there's the separation. And Paul declares to us that that's been removed. We now have an introduction into God's very presence and we stand in that position of, of grace. But Mark 15 declares to us when this access was granted. It was at the cross of Jesus Christ. Mark 15, verse 29. There are two events that happened at the crucifixion of Jesus that, that declares both the separation from God and now this access that, that, has, that has been granted. And they're both put on open display in the, in the, the crucifixion. In fact, the, the last few hours of the, the crucifixion. And the first one is, is seen in this darkness that, that fell all over the land. Mark, Mark 15, verse, verse 29. Christ is on the cross here. It says, And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, Aha, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days. Save yourself and come down from the cross. And so also the chief priests with the scribes mocked him to one another, saying, He saved others, he can't save himself. Let the Christ, the King of Israel, come down from the cross so that we may see and believe. And those who were crucified with him also reviled him. Jesus willingly goes to the cross to to fulfill the Father's plan, and he's hanging there, and he's mocked here by all the representatives of humanity. The Romans walk by and wag their heads. The Jewish leaders ridicule him, and and even the condemned criminals with him revile him. That's sinful mankind's response to the cross. How will mankind, apart from special grace, sovereign grace, respond to the cross, this is how they respond. It's foolishness, mocking derision. How does the Father respond to the cross? Look at Mark 15, 33. It would be better if you follow in your Bibles, but if you don't have one, I'll put it on the screen for you. From the sixth hour until the ninth hour, darkness came over all the land. So the sixth hour would would be noon, according to the Jewish day. The day began at 6 a.m., so it's now high noon. It's the brightest and the the hottest point of the the day. Jesus was placed on the cross about 9 a.m., and at the third hour, darkness falls over Jerusalem. Luke 23, 45 says, The sunlight failed literally. So darkness fills this entire interval between now and whenever Jesus dies. Now, I mean, now imagine, if you will, it, it's, it's noon in the middle of the day, and all of a sudden the sun is snuffed out and it turns black as night. I mean, there's no sunlight at all, anywhere. It's like a moonless sky, a starless night. And you that would probably catch your attention, I would guess. Some try to dismiss this as a solar eclipse or some other natural phenomenon, but, but that's not possible because it's a full moon for the Passover. I even read somewhere where somebody said this darkness is the, it was the devil overshadowing the cross of Jesus whenever Jesus did his work, you know, kind of in the background, saying, I'm here, I'm doing this. And the Bible rejects both of those outright. It's as a, this is a miracle. It's, It's not a natural occurrence. In fact, this is exactly what God said he would send as a warning to unbelievers before before judgment. The devil is somewhere in the corner sucking his thumb. He's not running the solar system. He didn't want the cross to happen because he knows it's going to put him to open shame. I mean, he's not in control of Calvary. The Father and the Son are. This darkness is the Father arriving on the scene. This is the Father's response to the cross. This darkness is prophetic, it's symbolic, 
And, and in it, God's declaring something, something about that separation. It's prophetic because it's, it's fulfilled prophecy. It, it echoes what was foretold in the Old Testament. It's symbolic because darkness happened at the first Passover, and so here it is at the last Passover, and it's also a declaration about what's going to happen to the religious leaders and anyone who rejects the Son after his substitutionary death, which is happening right now on the cross. I mean, in the Old Testament, the approaching day of the Lord is prophesied as, as darkness. Amos 5.20 Will not the day of the Lord be darkness instead of light, even gloom, with no brightness in it? Joel 1.15 through chapter 2 Alas, for the day, the day of the Lord is near, and it will come as a destruction from the Almighty. The earth will quake and the heavens will tremble. The sun and the moon grow dark and the stars lose their brightness. The sun will be turned into darkness and the moon into blood before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. In Amos 8, 9, It will come about in that day, declares the Lord God, that I will make the sun go down at noon and make the earth dark in broad daylight. I mean, the day Amos is talking about is the judgment that God's going to bring on the earth. It's the day of the Lord. And this darkness on Calvary is, for, is a foreshadowing of that. It symbolizes God's wrath. It symbolizes the Father's presence in divine judgment. And it should have brought repentance to any Jew who would have known these verses very well. I mean, this darkness is also symbolic. It's not just prophetic wasn't just spoken of in the Old Testament, it's symbolic. I mean, they should have remembered the last time that darkness came in the Passover. Remember, the the Passover happens, I mean, the, the crucifixion happens during the Passover. I mean, so this darkness happens right in the middle of it, and there are millions of people in Jerusalem, and the Passover lambs are being slaughtered. You remember what happened during the first Passover? The Lord said to Moses, stretch out your hand toward the sky that there may be darkness over the land of Egypt, even a darkness which may be felt. It's thick darkness. So Moses stretched out his hand toward the sky and there was thick darkness in all the land of Egypt. Darkness covered the land of Egypt and it was a sign that God gave before his final plague. What was his final plague? The killing of the firstborn. And it symbolized God's curse was resting on Egypt. And it symbolized to Pharaoh the curse was coming if he did not repent. And you know the story. Pharaoh hardens his heart and wouldn't listen to God, so the plague comes. And now, that same darkness rests on the land of Israel at the final Passover with Jesus on the cross. There's so much symbolism here. There's the bondage of Egypt in the Bible is sin, and God's deliverance from Egypt is, symbolizes deliverance from, from our sin. And now God's about to curse His own firstborn for them. And before He does, He warns the people not to harden their heart. I mean, you see this is just amazing, unfathomable grace here. The cross is filled with opportunity after opportunity pleading to stop, pleading to turn around. And God might be doing that for you today. In fact, He is, if you're here, if you're listening. And this message is a plea to, to stop and to listen to God's Son and not harden your heart. But sadly, the leaders of Israel were just like Pharaoh, and they rejected even this final call, and so God declares their, their end This sudden darkness is actually a sign, the sign that they requested back in verse 32. Look back at verse 32. It says, let this Christ, the the King of Israel, now come down from the cross, so that we may see a sign and we may believe because of the sign. They didn't get the sign that they requested. Jesus didn't come off the cross. God gives them a different sign, one in darkness, and they should have understood that sign. The sign is declaring their days are numbered. And they didn't believe. And in 70 AD, most of their families died and the temple was destroyed. And Jesus said when the religious rulers asked for this sign, 
They asked for signs in general in, in Matthew chapter 12, verse 38. Uh, an evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it but the sign of Jonah the prophet. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the sea monster, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. But Jesus doesn't stop there with that statement. He says the men of Nineveh will stand up in this generation at the judgment and will condemn it because they repented at the preaching of Jonah and something greater than Jonah is here. Did you hear the tenses? They will do this, the men of Nineveh will do this at the judgment. The men of Nineveh are already dead and gone. And yet they're going to be a witness at the judgment. And they're going to be a witness that condemns because of what is being declared right now because the people didn't repent of the message. Even though they had a greater messenger. Men are repented at Jonah's preaching. Jesus says, you'll not repent at the Son of God's preaching. You'll not repent if I get off the cross or when I rise from the dead. So here's your sign. It's a declaration of your end. God didn't bring judgment on him right then because he's pouring out that judgment on his son. But this was a declaration of what's coming in the future. And look at Jesus' response, which is this second, where the second event takes place. So the first event is this darkness foreshadowing separation right now and a greater separation that's coming. And here's the second, verse 34. It says, at the ninth hour, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, which is translated, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? I mean, it makes me shudder to even say it. By this time, Jesus has already made three statements from the cross. Do you remember what they were? The first was, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. The second was to to Mary and John. To to Mary, he says, woman, behold your son. To John, he says, behold your mother, because his own brothers were not believers at this point. The third thing he said was to the thief on the cross. Today you'll be with me in paradise. And now he makes this fourth statement. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? C.E.B. Canfield said that this is a, a cry of dereliction. It's taken from Psalm 22. Jesus cried us out in agony and in affirmation. In this one statement, you can see Christ's faithfulness and you can see the fulfillment of his mission. He, he obediently fulfills his task in the agony of being forsaken and he faithfully affirms his future by calling him, My God, my God. This this is the moment when Jesus took hell for sinners. This is the only time in the New Testament where Jesus uh, uses the term God rather than Father. All the other times it's Father, and here he says, my God, because he's never been separated from the Father. But at this moment he is. He's not separated from God's literal presence because that's impossible. God is everywhere. He's even in hell. It's God's abandonment that he experiences. And Jesus is experiencing the the presence of God's wrath and the absence of his comfort. So he feels this, this vacating of God's mercy. In this moment, Christ felt the sinner's abandonment of God and his holy wrath cuts the sinner off from all forms of divine mercy. He senses the very absence of God's mercy and his complete abandonment because he was bearing our sin. You, you shouldn't think it's the, the bodily suffering of Christ that, that's what saves you. Jesus must bear our eternal punishment, which is eternal separation from God and, and all goodness in, in hell. That's why in the, the Gospels it just simply says, and he was crucified. It doesn't go through the gory details of the blow-by-blow of a crucifixion. It just says he's crucified and gives us all this other information about what he says and his rejection and God's darkness and all of those things because it's, it's not about the physical part. This experience is nothing anyone has ever experienced before. 
not before this moment. No one on earth before this moment has ever experienced being cut off completely by God, not a living person. I mean, even atheists and blasphemists Uh, blasphemers today experience the presence of God in common grace. I mean, they experience grace in creation. The sun rises on them and sets. They experience the blessing of of marriage and children and food and rest at night. They they have the benefit of the sanctifying effect of the church and and the word that they reject. But there'll be none of that in hell. In hell, a person who rejects God's mercy now will be cut off from God and all of His goodness completely. I said, God's not absent in hell. It's His judgment that actually torments the sinner. But all goodness and all mercy will be absent. Only the fires of divine wrath will be present. Jesus offered Himself to bear that judgment. And now He experiences the full alienation which the judgment entails. This is the cup that Jesus anticipated in the garden. It it, it wasn't just the the judgment for one person, but for every sinner who would believe. This is what he sweats great drops of blood over. In those three hours, Jesus received the eternal wrath of every sinner in history who would ever believe. And that wrath requires a never-ending period of time for one sinner. And and Jesus took took that for all sinners in a three-hour period, condensed in undiluted form. No normal human being could do that. But Jesus could because He was God. And He could receive an infinite, eternal amount of wrath because He was an infinite and eternal person. That's why He sweat the great drops of blood. The agony of the cross was not the physical scourging or nails as horrible as they are. And this is why the Bible emphasizes the rejection of people and their mocking and the rejecting judgment of God on Jesus in the darkness and the abandonment. And yet he never doubted the outcome. How do we know that? How does he start his cry? My God, my God. He doesn't say Father because of the alienation but he never doubts the ending. He knows he will be exalted. He knows Hebrews 12, 2. It was for the joy that was set before him. He endured the cross, despising the shame, knowing that he's going to be exalted, that he'll sit down at the right hand of the throne of God. And So how will people witnessing this supernatural darkness for three hours, blackness, that covered the land, how will they respond? How will they respond to the Father's presence reminding them of the separation that's coming. Will they see the suffering servant? Well, look at verse 35. Because it tells us. It says, When some of the bystanders heard it, they began saying, Behold, he is calling for Elijah. And someone ran, uh, someone ran and filled a sponge with sour wine and put it on a reed and gave it to him gave him a drink saying, let us see whether Elijah will come and take him down. So Mark says the the bystanders, which includes the crowds, the leaders of of Israel no doubt are there. And the minute that the darkness subsides, and they heard Jesus cry, the mockery begins again. I mean, they heard Eli, Eli, and they think that he's crying out for Elijah, which is how the name Elijah starts. And Jewish superstition said that Elijah shows up and helps the righteous whenever they're in need. And you remember Elijah didn't die. He was taken up into heaven, which is where that superstition comes from. And, and so they say he's calling for Elijah to come and rescue him because he's the righteous one. Let's see if he comes and saves the righteous one. Still mockery and sarcasm. They even give him a drink to keep him alive a little longer or to wet his mouth so they can hear what he'll say or something like that. And Elijah doesn't show up, but God does in another profound way. And here it is. He appears the first time in darkness, indicating separation. And he appears again in verse uh, 37. And Jesus uttered a loud voice and breathed his last, and the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. I know you probably know that, something we talk about quite often. 
But understanding it in the context of the darkness and the separation and what Romans is saying in chapter 5 is significant. It says he cried out and breathed his last. Do you know what he cried? Do you know what Jesus cried when he breathed his last? Well, John 19, verse 30 tells us, Therefore, when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said in a powerful voice, It is finished. It's accomplished. One word, tetelestai, which means it's, it's been done. It stands accomplished. And he breathed his last. And John says he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. This is not a, a victim, but a victor. This is not a man suffering and succumbing to death's grip. This is a, a powerful and purposeful cry declaring the course is, is completed. And he makes one final statement in Luke 23. Into your hands I commit my spirit. MacArthur said, he said three things before the darkness. He says nothing during the darkness. God's doing all the speaking then in the darkness. And four statements after the darkness. And he breathed his last. And when he says he breathed his last, it doesn't mean that he gave up. It means that he chose to die at that moment. He has just borne God's full fury and eternal hell concentrated in three hours, and he's still aware, and he's fully alive. And he died while in complete sovereign control over the moment. No man took his life, he willingly laid it down. And once Christ declared his work was accomplished, he left the body that was prepared for him in the incarnation. And when he did, God the Father responds and describes what just happened. At the end of verse 37, and the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. That's the Father's answer to the cross. The bystanders see the cross, nothing but a joke. The Father declares it's the end of the old covenant and the opening of the new one. And don't forget the background of what's going on here. I mean, this is right in the middle of Passover. The, the priests are in the temple sacrificing Passover lambs when this happens. This doesn't happen in the middle of the night, and they come in the next morning and go, Oh, what happened? I mean, the temple is full, and it's full of priests and blood. They're not in the holies of holy, but they're outside administering the Passover sacrifices. Thousands of thousands of lambs are being slaughtered. The historians tell us that the blood would run out of the temple and fill the Kidron during this time. And it says that as they're doing this, the thick curtain of the holies of holy, the place where the high priest entered only on the Day of Atonement, is torn from top to bottom, and they can see into the very presence of God. And these priests know that passage back in Exodus, in Exodus 19. Don't go near the mountain, don't look at God, and now this, this, this way is opened. The curtain was purposeful because no one had direct access to God in the Old Covenant. They had to go through the priesthood. They needed a sacrifice to cover their sins. The priest goes in, backs out quickly. You can imagine their shock and their horror. I mean, you didn't go in there, much less look in there because of God's holiness, and now it's wide open. And it's been torn from top to bottom showing who opened it. It was God himself. At 3 p.m., at the very moment God's God sacrificed his own Passover lamb, and Jesus Christ made full atonement. God interprets it by this act of opening the temple and ending the old covenant. Access to God is secured. This is the end of the old covenant and the beginning of the new. The shadows pass away, the sacrifices are no longer needed, the priesthood is voided, the temple was no longer the place where God would meet his people. The way is now open to all who will repent and believe. And it's not through priests or rituals or anything else anymore. It's through Christ's victorious sacrifice alone. And it was a declaration that God accepts his son's sacrifice and a declaration that the temple was over and that separation was over as well. This is interesting. You know the very first person who walked through that open veil, who, who went into the, into the very presence of God, the very first person? It was a Gentile executioner. Look at verse 39 of Mark. 
Baal of the temple was torn top to bottom. And when the centurion, who was standing right in front of him, saw the way that he breathed his last, he said, truly, this man was the son of God. Here's the, the final response. It's the centurion's deduction of what's going on here. I mean, the centurion was not a believer before the cross, but he became one at the cross. This guy is, is important. He's a centurion. He, he's probably in charge of the, of, the, of the execution. Centurion is a commander of at least 100 men. He's probably been there the whole time. He could have been at the trial of Jesus. He saw the scourging. He saw the mocking. He heard every statement that Jesus made. He saw him didn't retaliate, that he didn't retaliate. He endured it willingly, and he sees the end, and he hears him declare it's accomplished and then die, and he draws his conclusion. Truly, surely, this man was the Son of God. But notice what it was that caused him to believe. It says when the centurion saw that he expired in this manner. It's the best way to read that. The implication is that there was something about the way he died that caused the centurion to, to come to this final conclusion. All the evidence up to this point, but here's what pushed him over the edge. And this man had seen thousands of people die on the cross. He's probably put a number of them on the cross. And that there was something so different about Jesus, about his death, that he would conclude this was a divine death. He was alive, and then he chose to die. And he left his body. And it was evidence. It was, it, was, it was his choice. It was not a forced death. Jesus was in control, not his body's weakness, not a cross, not the Romans, not even death itself. He laid down his life after he accomplished his mission at his sovereign choosing. And he separated his spirit from his earthly body. And this man says this was the Son of God. Which actually is Mark's theme which is why he brings it back up here, is what Mark states in the very first verse of his gospel. Now, with all of that background, I want you to turn back to Romans 5 and we'll end. With the background of the... Turn ahead, I should say. Of the separation from God, and now the, the way of being, being opened... Let's read verse 1 and 2 again. This is therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom also we have obtained our introduction by faith into this grace in which we stand. Because of all of that, we now have access to God through our Lord Jesus Christ. He introduced us. He gave us access to God the Father. And we now stand in a place of grace instead of a state of wrath. Not far off, but, draw, but brought near. And we're able to remain there. And we're no longer in fear of that eternal separation that's going to come. If you're outside of Christ this morning, you're separated from God. But it's nothing like the alienation that is going to come in hell. Because there, here, you have graces. The sun will come out tomorrow. You enjoy certain things, even though you're not at peace with God. There's a separation, but there's coming a complete separation. And we can now draw near. The first two people that were saved at the cross was a blaspheming Jew and an unclean Gentile, a centurion. A thief and this, this Roman soldier. I think that that's, that's intentional. God declaring to us, it doesn't matter what you've done or who you are, the door of mercy has been flung off the hinges with the cross. You can come. Both responded to Christ and both did it after considering the cross. But the unbelieving leaders and bystanders walk away and only have divine darkness to face in the future. Hell is dark because it's the absence of God and the absence of His mercy and the presence of His judgment. And heaven has no need of light because the glory of the sun shines from the throne, and he's the centerpiece. 
of life. What you have to determine is which one you'll experience. And that will depend on what you conclude with Jesus and the cross. You'll meet him there as an offering for your, for your salvation, or you'll meet him in the darkness, and you don't want to meet him there. There is no access into God's presence any other place. It's only through Christ, and it's only by faith. But think of the blessing that we have as believers. We don't have to stay at the foot of the mountain. We get to go up the mountain. We get to go inside the holies of holy with the the experience of the Holy Spirit and draw near to God, and we can do that with confidence. But even that is not complete. That's just a foretaste of glory divine when we will be in the literal presence with God when full redemption takes place. And we draw near to Him. What a day that will be when my Jesus I shall see. Amen? Amen. Father, we love you. We thank you that you have you paid it all and you've done it all. Thank you, Lord Jesus, that you have brought us near. You've washed away our sins. You've declared us just, even though we're, we're unrighteous. And you have credited to our account the, the account of the Son. And now we're treated as someone who is right with you with all of the full benefits and even the wonderful benefits we have now are not all that we'll receive. There's still more some coming. Glorification, your presence, rewards, all of those things. And Lord, I can't wait to get there. But while I'm here and while we're here as believers, help us to know the gospel and be faithful to share it because there is a darkness coming. There's an eternal hell, a real place that people will be separated from you forever. And I pray that wouldn't be the case for anyone who hears today. May they repent and believe and be saved to the uttermost. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand. We're going to sing God is so good. children's songs are the simplest ones, aren't they? Don't forget tonight, uh, Adventure Club, 445, uh, 15 minutes early, 5 o'clock, not in here. This is where we've been in summer. We'll start over there all together. Um, Some construction still going on over there, but you'll be able to get in, and we'll sing a few songs, and then we'll dismiss and break up and more instructions then. So, Father, we love you. Dismiss us with your blessing. In Jesus' name, amen.